So when men are really, really angry or when anger rules men, guess what? It will never achieve the righteousness of God. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Douglas Peak here. I am the Salty Pastor, and you may notice that Jesse, our venerable host, is not with us today. So he's on vacation, and so I am pretty much on my own today as we do our in-depth Bible study on our book of James. And then on Thursday, we're going to have a guest host that is going to try to get me focused and on track for some practical application on how to apply what James is writing, and you and I then can apply it to our lives. And that's what the third day, Thursday podcast is all about. Now, if you're new to the Salty Pastor, I just want to say thank you for listening. And my goal is to help you really think for yourself. Uh, one of the things that's very important in a growing faith is that your mind and your heart and your actions are all engaged in it. And so that's really important. And we started last week with this brand new series called Back on Track. And the reason we did so is because our overall theme for the year at Foothills is going to be the good life. And this is based on the statement of Jesus in John 10.10, where he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Some translations translate it as have life more abundantly. So we want people to experience the good life. And one of the things that I believe has happened is that the pandemic has been a, 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 such an oppressive thing on people that they've kind of lost their capacity not only to place hope in God to save them, but hope that God wants to do some new things in their lives. So the first step that we're challenging everybody to do in order to live the good life is to develop a personal spiritual growth plan. Our adult ministries team is working on this, and they're doing a phenomenal job with coming up with a tool that actually helps you through each step of the process. It's not difficult to do. You're going to hear more and more about that. Where to get it, you can get the first step on our website as I speak. Now, one of the things that we did last week is just give an introduction to James, and then we kind of dug into James, and now we are going to pick up with the last half of chapter one, and then we're going to go into chapter two. So I just want to give you a brief review and remind you that the main theme in the book of James is found in verses two through four, where it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'd also like to read it again for you out of my New American Standard, where it says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its perfect result. In other words, a uh, completed or mature work or result, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's the main theme. And we really talked about how he starts off by saying you have to consider. So this is something that happens in your mind. And what you do impacts what you think. OK, 
Okay, that's very important. And we really see him pick up on this theme in the latter half of first chapter. Now, I want you to realize a couple facts. Number one, I said this before, James is considered to be one of the first books written in the New Testament library. There are 27 different books in the New Testament library. And we do know that James spoke at the council in Jerusalem uh, in Acts chapter 15, where he rendered an, an opinion. Now, since James does not mention Gentile Christians in his book, then a large group of scholars believe it was written prior to this council meeting. So it was written between A.D. 45 to maybe A.D. 49, somewhere before this council took place, because we know the council in Acts chapter 15 took place in A.D. 49. Now, during this period of time after Jesus Christ had rose from the dead on the day of Pentecost, started the church, and then ascended into heaven, is that there was a great persecution that broke out in the church. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says the following. Now, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The day that he's referencing is from chapter 7, where Stephen, who is one of the deacons, was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. Okay, so you got to kind of understand that this great persecution uh, started. And it says, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the Greek word for scatter or leave is called uh, diaspora. So this is called the great diaspora, where the gospel even though people were being persecuted, spread like wildfire because everybody fled the persecution, went back to their hometowns, and guess what happened? They started sharing what they knew. So this was really an explosion of the gospel. And so after that, a great persecution uh, broke out because of the stoning of Stephen. In verse 3, it says, Paul or Saul began to destroy the church, Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So this is going on, and James, writing to all Jews, says, consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. So do you get the flavor of what's going on here? Is that this book is being written to a group of people who are trying to survive and work through this incredible persecution that's going on on in their lives. And it's described that Saul was going from house to house and dragging people off, both men and women, and they were being thrown in prison for what they believe. So let's get to the second half of chapter one, and let's pick up where we left off last week. And that was beginning with verse 19. And here is what it says. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard at this point. This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and humility to receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hears who delude themselves. Now, I want to stop there for a moment and go back to verse 
19. And I want to talk about a principle here, all right? And notice what he says. There's something about anger that interferes with the ongoing process of developing the righteousness of God in your life, okay? So notice how he says, the anger, right? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, wow, we have what I call a juxtaposition. Don't you love that word? It's juxtaposition. It's a great word. If you're ever like talking to your wife, your husband, and they're talking about something, you might just throw that out and see what happens. I'm sure it will liven up the discussion. But basically what it means is you have a contrast and they can't be reconciled. They're mutually exclusive. So when men are really, really angry or when anger rules men, guess what? It will never achieve the righteousness of God. Now, this is not to say that Jesus had a righteous anger when he purged the temple. But what he's talking about, he's not talking about godly, uh, righteous anger. He's talking about the anger of man. So kind of a human-based anger. So what's really interesting is when he talks about this, He says, here are some practical steps to mitigate or control the anger in your life that doesn't uh, accomplish the righteousness of God. The first thing he says is do this, is quick to hear. Have you ever been in a discussion uh, with someone, your spouse maybe, or a good friend, or your kids, and you're you're kind of uh, emotionally jacked up a little bit, and you know your wife is talking to you, and she's saying something to you, and she said the first word, and maybe the first word out of her mouth was "you always," right? And so, what are you doing? You don't really listen to anything else she says. You're already formulating your rebuttal in your head, and you're just waiting for her to stop talking so you can just throw that out. Well. Everyone in uh, communication-focused industries all uh, say the same thing, and that is is that if you really want to have a discussion or conversation with somebody that builds and doesn't tear down, you need to practice active listening. And so what does active listening do? Is it basically causes you to repeat back to the person fairly what they just said. Now, what that does is it requires you to be what? Quick to hear. And that's what Paul is, or excuse me, James is saying. He said, look, first step is be quick to hear. I want to hear you. Uh, and I'm going to acknowledge that I heard you by repeating back to you. We're, we're doing another podcast about on parenting techniques. And our parenting coach, Kim, is always saying that whenever you talk to children and teenagers, the best thing to do is always start by repeating back what they just said to you, because it really affirms to them that you heard what you they said. And so this is what Paul, I'm sorry, James, boy, I keep doing that over and over again. So what we need to do is be quick to hear. So that's a technique. Then notice what he says is this, slow to speak. So if you don't want your anger to influence your words, be slow to speak. Now, this is something I found really interesting in couples. And that is you always have one couple that wants to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it right away. They, they don't want a cooling off period. They just, they just like want to rip the Band-Aid off. They just want to talk, 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 talk. Then the other person is like, well, I don't ever want to talk about it, you know? And if I ignore it long enough, Maybe it'll just go away. And what we found is that both of those sides of that coin are unhealthy. 
Okay. And so in conflict resolution, which I've done some teaching on conflict resolution, what you do is you have to figure out a way to talk about it and have a crucial conversation. And one of the best ways to do that is figure out how to speak. So you have to pick a time and you have to pick a location. You have to make sure you clarify the topic and you go through the steps. So what does the seven steps of conflict resolution that I have uh, given to everyone, and by the way, I believe you can still get the seven steps of conflict resolution somewhere on our website. It was one of the largest downloads we've ever had. I told people, download it, go home, print it off, and whenever you have to have a talk with your spouse, pull it out and use it. So what is the whole point of the seven steps of conflict resolution? You know what it's all about? It's about slowing down your conversation. That's what it's about. It's about slowing it down so that you are slow to speak. So if the righteousness of man, I'm sorry, if the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, then you have to figure out a way to manage your anger in your all relationships, but your most important ones for most. So he's talking about this. Why is this such an important thing? Why is it important to uh, manage your anger? Well, the goal is to consider how to be joyful in facing any trial, having a, a joyful attitude. See, that's a really important thing in a strong mind and strong heart type of faith. And that's the theme of James. So he addresses this right off the bat. Now let's go back into verse, uh, uh, I want to kind of pick up right here in verse 20 and 21. He says, I'm sorry, 21. He says, therefore, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So what has the power to renew your soul? What has the power to heal your soul? What has the power to redeem your soul? What has the power to free your soul? Well, right here he says, it is the word implanted in you. Well, now what exactly does that mean? Well, we know in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things were created through him. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus enters into your heart, you have the living word in you, and that's how you're made new. You're given a new heart, and your soul is now brought from death to life. But then the other thing he's talking about is the scriptures, the word of God, which reveals Jesus to us. So the way that you and I initially come to know Jesus is by reading the New Testament word. Now, here's a side note. If you're brand new to the faith, don't read the Old Testament first. Don't start there. I know, you know, you think, oh, it's a book. It's like a really great book. It's like one of those, uh, what was those Mitchum books, you know, like Hawaii and one on this and, you know, these grand stories. No, don't do that. Start with the book of Luke. 
read the gospel according to Luke, and then read the uh, book of Acts. So read those two first. That's where you want to start if you're new in the faith, because that is the backbone. That's the spine, is the life of Jesus and the life of the church. And once you understand that, then, now I'm not saying don't ever read the Old Testament. It's filled with wonderful stuff. The problem, though, is if you start there instead of starting with Jesus, it creates confusion. So what I want you to do is really focus yourself on how to put away all of the things that are weighing your soul down by focusing and receiving the word that's been implanted in your soul. And then look at verse 22. He goes on to say, but prove yourselves to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deludes or deceives themselves. So what he's saying is that if I hear something and think I've got it, believing that it is doing some type of transformational work in my life, but I'm not actually acting on what I believe, this is a form of deception. Okay, so I can deceive myself. So why is that? Well, look, he explains, he goes, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Now, that's a very important phrase. He immediately forgets what kind of person he was. I think that's really important because what you see here is he's making an identity statement, right? He's talking about your deep identity and whether or not you know who you really are. He says, verse 25, but the one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, meaning they're trying to do what's in it, They have not become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, and this person is blessed in what he does. Now, verse 25, if you like to highlight verses, highlight that one. Because notice what he's saying, is that the biggest issue that we struggle with in this life is our authentic identity. Who are we really? And this all comes down to, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you really know who you are meant to be? Do you have any idea or do you forget? And do you get pulled back into that old miry clay, the pit of destruction, the the mind that is trapped in bondage because it's not been set free by the word of God. When you when you read the New Testament and you read the words of Jesus and you read the words of Paul, what you see over and over and over again is this theme and that is you are a new creation. You have been made new in your heart and in your mind. You have been restored. You have been renewed. You have your feet set upon a firm foundation. And so it's really important to understand is that our identity is newly created in Christ. And so the more we embrace that, the more we walk in it, the more blessed, notice how he says there in verse 25, the more blessed this person is in whatever he does. So your new identity is significant in whatever you do, okay? Wherever you're at, 
Your new identity is critical in being blessed in every endeavor, every goal, every new thing you learn, every new relationship. They're blessed because you're walking in the fullness of who you are. But if you don't ever do the word, you listen, what you do is you create a context in your life to where you hear but don't do. So you kind of become addicted to information. You know, you get addicted to new stuff, but you don't really do anything about it. And what that does is that creates a context where you can forget who you are in Christ. So that's a very significant thing when it comes to learning how to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You see, if you encounter a trial and you've forgotten who you are, what does that trial do to you? Man, it shreds you. It shreds your soul. It shreds your relationships. It shreds everything about you. But what happens when you pass a test and you're ready? You know, what happens when you, when you know that you're ready and you're in the right mind and you go and you take that test? What do you do? You come out of there and you go, man, I crushed it. And your grade comes back, and what do they do? They say, you crushed it. And so how do you feel after that? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel like you're just going to drag your rear end into the next thing you got to do? Or do you go, man, I crushed that. I'm ready for another challenge. I'm, re- I'm ready to go. See, what it does is it builds your confidence in your, and your strength and your courage. And so what, what James is giving us is a process on how to live life that teaches us to walk in the fullness of our identity in Christ, okay? So uh, before I run out of time, I want to keep going on this. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, you have to really understand what he's saying here is he's writing to an all-Jewish audience, okay? And so they're going to hear this a little bit different than you and I are going to hear it uh, 2,000 years later and being Gentiles. In, in Judaism, these things uh, were what he was doing is he's saying these are the priorities of faith. So if you want to keep your faith pure, if you want to keep it strong, then you have to have the right priorities. So by maintaining your priorities, you're reinforcing your identity every single day. So this is why I'm challenging every person to write out their own spiritual growth plan. It helps you clarify what you believe. And we did that in step one of the assessment is like, well, where am I at in my life? What do I believe? How good am I doing? Number two, it establishes what your really convictions, your true convictions are. It really reveals them. And then finally, a spiritual growth plan will help you align the priorities in your life so you know what's most important, okay? Now, now what we're going to do is we're going to jump a little bit. We're going to jump verses 1 through 13 in James chapter 2. I'm going to come back to them. And the reason why I'm doing that is because 14 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 26 of of chapter 2, are linked to the idea that he just introduced in chapter 1 about being a doer of the Word and why you need to be a doer of the Word. So I want to kind of keep in the same vein uh, that we're discussing that in order before we move on, okay? Verse 14, What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, 
but you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, he's asking almost a sarcastic question here. He's saying, you're going to say you have faith, but no way to prove it. The way I live proves I have faith. He goes, look, what you're proposing doesn't make sense, because look what he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. He says, you see, it's what you do that really tells yourself who you believe yourself to be. The demons believe in God, but they have no desire to follow him or enact his will in any way, shape, or form. He says, are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled when he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, do you see what he's doing here is he's basically saying the logical conclusion of saying I have faith but I have no way to prove that I have faith. I have no works. I have no deeds. I don't have any outward expression of my faith. Guess what? I'm deceiving myself. And the worst part of deception is that it undermines your true identity of who you are in Christ. Now, it's really important to say, he's not trying to say you do everything, and the more things you do, the more spiritual you are. But what he is saying is that faith is realized in deeds. The two are connected together. So if you've been getting a new heart, just like, you know, you plant an apple tree in your backyard, that apple tree is going to grow up and it's going to do what? It's going to produce apples. If you have a new heart that's filled with faith, your heart's going to grow up and produce what? It's going to produce the fruits of that faith. So it's really important to not try and fly coach It's really important not to try to fly in the baggage compartment to heaven because if if you're trying to do the bare minimum of faith, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to be an apple tree that doesn't bear any apples. I want to be a fig tree that doesn't have any figs. I want to be a person that doesn't know who I really am in Christ. I want to be a person who has a weak faith, a failed faith, so that I can be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine out there. I want to be a person who doesn't know anything about what God's will is in this life, so that when someone comes along and they're a Pied Piper and say, hey, this is a really good thing to do, I jump on board wholeheartedly, not realizing that I'm furthering something of the devil instead of something of God. See, this is called discernment. It's called wisdom. It's called maturity. And what do tests do? What do trials do? Is they give us an opportunity to have our faith tested. And that way we become full, we become mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, let me conclude by going back to verses uh, 1 through 13. Okay? And what I want to do is I want to kind of read these and give them to you and realize how they fit within what 
James is talking about. What, what was happening in the church there is that there was a tradition in Judaism that had developed over you know, five centuries or a thousand years, maybe 10 centuries, of what happens is in society, if you do really well and you're doing really well, then God's favor is on you. If you're not doing really well, guess what? God's favor is not on you. And so because they were very legalistic in the way they applied the covenant. And so they believed that the better you hold to the dictates in, of the covenant, the more blessed you will be. Now, what happened is they just reduced that to, to a material understanding. And so over time, the hierarchy of the culture grew up around people who were poor they were seen to be, well, they're not good Jews. And then those who are wealthy must be better Jews. And James brings in this whole new ethic, which is so challenging to Jewish believers in Christ. Notice what he says. He goes, my brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So what he's doing is he's saying this, this legalistic hierarchical structure and judgment is a personal favoritism. So it's not of God, it's of our personal desires. He says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and have you not become judges with evil motives? So what he's saying is that if you're perpetuating this notion that people in their hearts are better people simply because they have more means then you're making a mistake because that's not how to judge the quality of a person's heart or soul. And so he goes, verse five, he goes, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? So he's teaching this notion that this, this personal thing that has kind of been imposed in society is called favoritism, and it doesn't advance the righteousness of God. And most importantly, it's not going to help you in strengthening your own heart and your own mind. As I said last week in my message on Sunday, don't use non-spiritual things to grow the spiritual things in your heart. In verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So notice what he says. He says, the goal here isn't to treat wealthy people poorly and poor people well. He's just simply saying, treat everyone the same without favoritism. And then verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as violators. And then what he does is he talks about this notion that Jewish believers really struggled with. And we see cropping up throughout the rest of the New Testament letters written by Paul. And that is... If you become a believer as a Gentile, are you required to follow the Jewish law? And so there was this essence of legalism that they were really digging through. And the earliest vestiges of this are referenced by James in the church at Jerusalem. And he says, look, if you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you become guilty of the whole law. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery but do murder, you become a violator of the law, so to speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. So he's saying, you know, don't use the law to determine the quality of a person's faith. Okay, don't, don't use outward means. And for you in particular, you have to realize is if you buy into this, what you're doing is you're going to accept on yourself a judgment on yourself that's going to weaken your heart and weaken your mind. It doesn't strengthen it. You should live not by the law, but by freedom. For we have freedom in Christ, you see. And what that means is sometimes it's really hard to grab a hold, but I want to kind of try to articulate it for you right now. And that is this. You're never going to be a perfect person, right? You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be pure of heart. You're never going to be pure of mind. You're never going to be pure of action 100%. There was only one Jesus, and you're not him, okay? Just remember that. There's only one Jesus and you're not him. So you're imperfect. So how do you as a perfect, imperfect person walk and live in the freedom of Christ? That's the challenge is how to learn our true identity and how to learn to deal with our flaws and our idiosyncrasies that never go away. And yet be okay with them, not fan the flames of them and, and not highlight them, but be okay that they're there and still walk in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Walking in the law of freedom for judgment is merciless to the one who's shown no mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. So isn't that interesting the way he says that? Now, this was my first time all on my own so you guys will have to drop some uh, comments. Let me know how I did if you feel that this Bible study was beneficial to you. Now, on Thursday, we're going to have a guest host. We're going to dig into how to apply the biblical principles that we learned today uh, to our everyday life. So thanks for listening, and I am glad to be with you. I am the Salty Pastor. Blessings. Blessings.